Welcome to this week's Sabbath School Study Hour at the Granite Bay Seventh-day Adventist Church in California. We would like to give you an offer today, and this offer is for the book, Your Case in Court. If you'd like to receive this, we invite you to call this number, 866-788-3966. And you're going to ask for the offer 192. If you happen to be in the United States, you can text SH050 to the number... 40544. If you happen to be outside the United States, you can go to our online website and order this that way, free, and that is study.aftv.org forward slash sh050. I'll give you this following information at the end of our Sabbath school study today. I want to thank you for joining with us and listening to the program wherever you are in this world. But before we begin, let's ask the Lord to guide and direct us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can come together to be able to look at this important topic of excuses to avoid mission. Many of us have these excuses, and there are other people in the Bible that have had them. But we ask and pray that you would open not only our eyes, but open our hearts to be receptive to listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that we might be obedient in that. Guide and direct my words at this time as I teach this lesson, for I ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I have for you today in dealing with the topic of excuses to avoid mission, have you ever heard the voice of God? Have you ever heard God telling you something or perhaps maybe even God asking you to do something. You know, the, the thing that we find here, that sometimes God will tell us, can you go here? Can you go there? And sometimes we hold back. Many years ago, God had miraculously saved me from dying in a plane crash. And he called me into ministry, but I fought it and I ran from it. But that's no different than anybody else. You see, since the very beginning of time, God has called people to serve him. He has called them to listen to his wisdom and his knowledge. He has called prophets. He has called disciples. He had called people to be teachers and preachers and doctors and even carpenters. And the list goes on. He has called people to serve him. And you have to understand, this calling from God is a most vitally important one. No call is less important than any other. No member is less important than any other part of the body of Christ. Your call from God is just important as anyone who has ever been called by God. But what are the calls from God that usually stick out in our mind? We're going to look at some of these calls. Some of these that we can look at are other ones that have been called. For example, Abraham, he lacked the faith in God's promises. Moses doubted in the ability to lead. We have Elijah who dis had despair and he was depressed. 
We had Jacob's deception of his father-in-law. And then we come to the one that we're going to look at very shortly. But did you know since the actual establishment of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, God had called several others to be his mouthpieces. Did you know that before Ellen White, God had called two others to also serve as a prophet. He called, for example, William Foy. William Foy accepted the message for a little bit. And then shortly after that, William rejected that message. And then from there, the invitation went to another. And that was actually Hazen Foss. Hazen Foss was actually a distant relative of Ellen White. But both of these men, this is what's important. Both of these men had refused to accept this call of God. So what did God do? At this point, he turned to what we well known as the weakest of the weak. He turned to Ellen Harmon and she reluctantly accepted because she really couldn't refuse God. What about Foss and what about Foy? Well, this is what Ellen White said in her heart. As she wrote to her good friend, John N. Loughborough, he extended to her, or she extended to him, her feelings of what she felt about being called to be a prophet. She writes here and she says to John, if I could have my choice and please God as well, I would rather die than to have a vision. For every vision places me under great responsibility to bear testimonies of reproof and warning, which has ever been against my feelings, causing me affliction of soul that is inexpressible. Then she says, never have I coveted my position. And yet, I dare not resist the Spirit of God and seek an easier position. Well, this week's lesson is all about this. And as we dig deeper into this, we're going to have a very big understanding about one that ran from God. His name, yes, as you know it, his name is Jonah. God called Jonah to cry out to Nineveh. But what do we know about Nineveh? Well, let's establish that first, because once we understand about Nineveh, then we would understand why there was a little bit of fear and foreboding that went on in Jonah's heart. You see, in Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian empire during this period of Syrian dominance, which was throughout the Near East. It reigned from 703 to 612 BC. For this reason, it was very much a prominent biblical figure in literature from the 9th century until Syria fell to Babylon in the year 612 BC. Nineveh was a very important Syrian city. This city is right now, if we were to look at in modern day, it's located in the modern country of Iraq. It's about 560 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It would definitely be a good month's journey to be able to get there. Now remember that, a good month's journey. That would be 30 days of traveling by walking to get there. Jonah not only refused to go, but instead of going towards the city of Nineveh, Jonah decided he's going to run the opposite direction. 
So instead, he arrives in a town called Joppa. Joppa is a port town. It's a little bit southwest of Jerusalem. And he buys a passage to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Tarshish is all the way around by Spain. So instead of going this way, Jonah decides, I'm going to go all the way around and go as far as I can to get out of the way. This sailing trip of 2,000 miles would have taken at least 30 days. Notice, another 30 days. Depending on the weather, not wanting to confront the king of Syria, Jonah uses this 30-day time period to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. Our lesson happens to follow a format here that goes from Sabbath, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But I want to simplify this a little bit. Even though I'm going to go through the individual days, I want you to look at it from this perspective because this whole lesson is about Jonah. So I'm going to simplify it and take it that this is four parts of Jonah. In the first part, we find that Jonah is a man who is running from God. That's what we can surmise through all of this. When we look at Sunday's lesson, I want to bring you to the text of Nahum chapter 3, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. We learn a lot about Nineveh through Nahum here. And Nahum writes in verse 1, Woe to the bloody city! It is, an, it is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, the horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlots, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. So what do we learn about this? Well, Nineveh was notoriously wicked. It was a people known for their evil, for their cruelty, and who had attacked Israel and Judah as well. We find that the Bible frames Nineveh as a thoroughly evil city. And because it's that evil, it's also an enemy of Israel. The book of Jonah describes Nineveh, its inhabitants, and its king as so evil that Yahweh threatens to completely destroy them if they do not repent. This is what we find that's written in the book Prophets and Kings, page 265. Mrs. White writes and she says, among the cities of the ancient world in the days of divided Israel, one of the greatest was Nineveh the capital of the Assyrian realm, founded on the fertile banks of the Tigris River. Soon after the dispersion of, from the Tower of Babel, it had flourished through the centuries until it became, quote, an exceedingly, an, sorry, an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Now, from also the book Prophets and Kings, the next paragraph we find in the time of its, in, its temporal prosperity, Nineveh was the center of crime and wickedness. Inspiration has characterized it as the bloody city. 
full of lies and robbery. In figurative language, the prophet Nahum compared Nineveh's, Ninevites to a cruel, ravenous lion, upon whom, he says, has not thy wickedness passed continually. Well, this gives us a little bit of an idea, but let's dig a little deeper into Nineveh. And what we find is this. The lesson brings out some very good points here. And it says, in his account of the conquest of Babylon, Sennacherib boasted that he filled the cities with the corpses of its inhabitants, young and old, and relief carvings found during excavations depict scenes of soldiers impaling their victims. These were not people you really wanted to cross. They were adverse to using violence and gratuitously cruel against those who they didn't like. Indeed, at the thought of walking through the masses of the people of Nineveh, Jonah must have quaked with fear. In spite of all this, we find we often read Jonah's story with a disapproval for letting fear get in the way of carrying out God's instructions. What we fail to realize is that many of us today are doing the same thing. We allow ourselves to be controlled by fear rather than by God. The lesson also points out, nevertheless, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry out against its great wickedness. But here's a thought question for you. The thought question is this. It's found in the lesson at the bottom of Sunday. It says, think back to a time when you felt strongly that God was directing you to do something that you, out of fear, really didn't want to do. What lessons have you learned from that experience? Well, I can tell you this. Having been somebody that ran, it's a whole lot easier not to run and just follow and obey God. Many times we try to get outside of God's will, but it's always best for us to stay within the center of God's will. That's where it's safest. This brings us to Monday's lesson. The title for Monday's lesson is are excuses false views? I want to go through the book of Jonah here in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 here and go from there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But what we find is Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Well, incidentally, verse 4 tells us, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Notice, these are well-seasoned seamen. They know the sea very well, and yet... To make one of them scared like this, that must have been an awfully horrendous storm. And we find here the middle of verse 5, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship, had lain down, 
and was fast asleep. Wow, what was his conscience like to know that in the midst of the storm with the boat going up and down, that he could actually fall asleep down at the bottom of the boat. Verse six says, so the captain came to him and said, what do you mean sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come to us. So they cast lots. And wouldn't you know it, the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble from uh, upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Verse 9 tells us, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. I find that kind of the little irony because he says, I fear the Lord. Yet, what is he doing at this very point? He's actually running away from God. And he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and who made the sea and the dry land. In verse 10, all of a sudden, things changed. Then the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, why have you done this? Notice these are not God-fearing men because they're crying out to their gods, but they turn to Jonah, who was supposed to be a God-fearing man, and says, why have you done this to us? The men knew that he fled from the presence of God because he told them. Verse 11 says, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. I can imagine these sailors looking at each other thinking, did he just say what I think he said? Throw him into the sea? Well, we find that Jonah says, for I know that this great temptus is because of me. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard. They tried to say, okay, we didn't, we didn't hear that. We're going to pretend that we didn't hear that. and We're going to continue going forward here. But all of a sudden, they just couldn't anymore. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And as soon as Jonah touched the water, immediately the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Jonah was running from God. He was called to preach he was called to be a prophet from the very beginning of the chapter. And the third verse, Jonah hits the road running. There are some of you listening right now that have heard God calling you, yet you have despised this and you've run from it. But I encourage you, you will find no peace running. It's best to always listen to God and obey what he commands. So now... Notice what happens in the last verse of chapter 1 in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Get this. 
even though Jonah ran from God, God still was caring for him. And now Jonah is in the sea. God, we don't know if it was a whale. We don't know what it was exactly, but we know it was huge enough that it could swallow Jonah and still have air for him inside there. And Jonah, we find, was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, this ties in very well with chapter one of, I mean, chapter two of verse one. It says here, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the sea, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All the billows and your waves passed over me. And what did Jonah do when he realized that running from God was worthless? Well, he ran back to God. He turned from the one, he turned to the one that could save him. So the second major point I want to bring out here is first we find Jonah was running from God. Now we find Jonah is running to God. The story of Jonah is a story that relates to God's people in general. It relates to God's last day church. It's a story about me and it's a story about you. It's a story of Jonah that tells me that when you get tired of running from God, running from his plan for your life, that all of a sudden he's still there. He's there to hear your cry of help. He's there when you want to return back to him. Many of us are running today. How many of us are really, really, truly running from God, running from his presence when he says, answer my calling, running from the duty to tell the world? Jonah found out that there was no future in running from God. And from the belly of the fish, it prepared him, and he cried out, running to God. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 248, we find inspiration tells us, but God will not impart to men divine light while they are content in remaining in darkness. In order to receive God's help, man must realize his weakness and his deficiency. He must apply his own mind to the great change to be wrought in himself. He must be aroused to earnest and persevering prayer and effort. Notice what is said next. Wrong habits and customs must be shaken off, and it is only by determined endeavor to correct these errors and to conform to right principles that the victory can be gained. Many, many have never attained to the position that they might occupy because they wait for God to do for them that which he has given them the power to do for themselves. All who are fitted for usefulness must be trained by the severest mental and moral discipline. And God will assist them by uniting divine power with human effort. It's no different today. If you want God to help you, you must first do what you can yourself and then rely on God to do his share. When we do evangelism, 
Our duty is to spread the seeds. Our duty is never to have the people convicted. That's not our job. That's God's job. We can lead, as the proverbial saying says, we can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. In Tuesday's lesson, it's titled, Our Excuses, Inconvenience. The lesson brings out some good points here. In the paragraph, it says, Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish was a dramatic show of God's love and mercy. And Jonah's prayer reveals that he didn't miss God's message of love. But just because he had had an incredible encounter with God didn't mean that his old thoughts, habits, or attitudes would easily change. Even though he went to Nineveh anyways, he might have still had those thoughts. You know, I have been pastoring for many years, and I've heard many excuses from many of the saints in the church. All kinds of reasons why they can't share the faith. But I want to read you a quotation that I found in Desire of Ages, page 822.2. It says, Christ's communion to the disciples included all the believers. It included all the believers in Christ to the end of time. And then she says, it is a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls depends alone on the ordained minister. All to whom heavenly inspiration has come are put in trust with the gospel. All who receive the life of Christ are ordained to work for the salvation of their fellow men. For this work, the church was established. Send all who take upon themselves its sacred vow are thereby privileged to be co-workers with Christ. Now, think about this for a moment. Despite the wickedness of Nineveh, Jonah was inside that fish for several days contemplating his decision. And then while inside that fish, that fish took him right to the shores as close as possible to Nineveh. He still had many, many days of walking, but he was a lot closer. And can you imagine this fish just beaching itself on the, the land and out walks Jonah, probably covered in seaweed and all kinds of stuff. But here's something to think about. You see, as the boat went from the southwest area South, from Joppa up through Jerusalem, it, the boat always took the line closest to shore. Rather than going straight across, it would go up and around. And shortly after it took off, I'm sure it was probably at the closest point to Nineveh that all this whole ordeal happened. It wasn't like he was hundreds or thousands of miles away. I believe that that was very close. And Jonah actually may have found himself closer to Nineveh than when he was in Joppa. In chapter 3 of Jonah, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message I tell you. Notice, in the last days, we're told that we will have no set speech. The words will be given to us. How will the words be given to us? 
because we would have studied all these things in the past and the past things is what comes to our minds because God will bring that to our minds. But this is critically important to understand. If we don't study the word now and hide these things and put these things in our mind, there will be no ability to recall what has not been already put in place. Verse 3 tells us, So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A three days journey? What do we know about a three days journey? Well, this is what we find from historians. Nineveh was big. I mean, it was approximately 60 miles across. That would be a, a very big city. It's probably almost like a hundred kilometers across. The size of ancient Nineveh was established rather accurately because the city walls were clearly visible even today in their ruined state. In the form of the drawn out hills interrupted by gaps where the gates were located, these walls can be seen still today from a great distance. Combined lengths measure about seven and a half miles or 12 kilometers. The area of Nineveh is figured out to be approximately 1,640 acres or 663 hectares. Some have estimated that the population of the walled city to be at about 160,000. But we're told in the Bible that it's about 120,000. But there were always those that lived outside of the wall. And it is estimated that some of the writers and historians figure that the population of Nineveh could have been anywhere from 600,000 to 2 million people. The third point I'd like to bring to you now is that Jonah is no longer running from God. He's running to God. But now we find that Jonah is actually obeying God. This, the Sabbath school lesson points out whatever Jonah's personal feelings of Nineveh, he preached what God told him. And what were the results? It says that the results were astonishing. What many don't realize is, as a pastor, you can prepare a sermon. But if you are consecrated to the Lord to preach fully what the Word of God says undiluted, the Holy Spirit will give you not only the right words to say, but will add more within the heart of the hearer. And, was, and this was a situation in Nineveh. God worked through the preaching of Jonah. Sometimes we refer to Jonah as the greatest revivalist the world has ever known. But Jonah didn't do anything. All Jonah did was open his mouth and speak. It had nothing to do with the people. God just needs a spokesperson. Once the spokesperson speaks, then God can use those words to actually work on the hearts of the people. And what we find here, there's an article that was written in the Review and Herald, September 16, 1873. And it says, ministers who are preaching present truth 
should not neglect the solemn message to the Laodiceans. The message, the, the testimony of the true witness is not a smooth message. The Lord does not say to them, you are about right. You have borne chastisement and reproof and you never deserved. You have been discouraged unnecessarily by severity and you are not guilty of the wrongs and sins which you have been reproved. The Lord never says that. You see, the Ninevites were moved to repentance. Yes, Jonah had to go through a lot to do what he didn't want to do, but yet he did it and God was glorified. Listen to this quotation that is given to us in Testimonies of the Church, volume five, page 299. We find the following and it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He did not speak, he did not seek to be the Lord's messenger, but the word came to him. God always has men to whom he entrusts his message. His spirit moves upon their hearts and constrains them to speak, simulated by holy zeal and with the divine impulse strongly upon them, they enter into the performance of their duty without coldly calculating the consequences of speaking to the people the word which the Lord has given them. But the servant of the Lord is soon made aware that he has risked something. He finds himself and his message made the subject of criticism. His manners, his life, his prosperity, or I mean, sorry, his property are all inspected and commented upon. His message is picked to pieces and rejected in the most illiberal and unsanctified spirit as men in their finite judgment see fit. Has the message done the work that God designed it should accomplish? No. It has signally failed because the hearts of the hearers were unsanctified. That's the church today. But what do we find in the situation with Nineveh? Were their hearts unsanctified? Oh, no. You see, on the contrary, there was a great revival that took place. People saw their sins, they saw where they were, and they saw their need for God. So here's a question I wanna ask you. Is God asking you to sacrifice something perhaps? Or maybe he has given you the impression that you need to say something to someone. Maybe that's been going on for years. Maybe you were supposed to say something to your neighbors. Or maybe say something to a family member or say something to a fellow worker. How completely do you trust that he will fill, fulfill his promise to enrich your life through this sacrifice? Because if you don't believe it, it's not going to happen. In Wednesday's lesson, Wednesday is titled, Our Excuses, Uncomfortable Confrontations. Jonah chapter 3 now records what happens with Jonah. Jonah says, Ah, oh, Lord, was not that, was not this what I said when I was in, still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Wait a second. Did you hear that right? So we have Jonah was a man that was running from God. Then he was running to God. 
Then he preached the message that God wanted him to because he was a man that was obeying God. Now the fourth and final point is that Jonah now becomes a man who is playing God. He's putting himself in the position of God. Playing God by placing himself in the judgment seat before God and the people he was supposed to or he did lead to the Lord. Jonah. Jonah was embarrassed. He said that Nineveh would be destroyed. But he was afraid that he would look like a liar because he would be a false prophet. Because God didn't destroy the city. Because why? Everybody changed. Not some, but everybody changed. And that's a wonderful thing. But Jonah was thinking, they're going to be destroyed. And he grumbles. He complains. Why? Well, the lesson brings out because Jonah wanted Nineveh to be the next Sodom and Gomorrah. He was hoping for God's judgments on these people that he hated. When it didn't happen, his worldview was shaken to the core. And Jonah would rather die than allow his world to be turned upside down. Here's what the Bible says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? What plant? We'll cover that in a moment. And he said, Is it right for you, for me to be angry even to death? But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which more are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between right hand and their left hand and much their livestock? Many times we assume the judgment seat to play God. We want it done this way or that way. In Jonah's situation, he not only hated the sin, but he also hated the sinner. We forget many times that we are called to love the sinner, but to hate the sin. But in Jonah's situation, he not only hated the sin, but he also hated the sinner. So to help Jonah see through God's loving eyes, God used a plant and he showed that if he could care for the life of a plant, why should not God be concerned about the people for whom they were lost? The lesson points out here that a new experience God gave was to help Jonah recognize his own distorted worldview. God made this plant miraculously grow so large overnight in one day to offer sufficient shade to protect Jonah from the blazing sun. I can tell you that in California, and I've been to other places during the summertime where it's just very, very hot, that sun will bake you. This is why I hate wearing black clothing during the summertime because it just soaks up the sun. But even if you wear white clothing, it still gets very, very hot. Jonah was grateful, not for God, who performed the miracle, but he was grateful for the plant. But rather than seeing this as an unmerited miracle, he saw it as an appropriate and well-deserved blessing that followed his good works. When the plant died, it was a misfortune 
that caused Jonah to grow angry and insecure in his own self-worth. And his thoughts, his thoughts grew suicidal. The lesson continues to point out the experience is followed by God's voice of a gentle correction, helping Jonah to see how foolish it was for him to value a plant more than the many thousands of men and women and children in Nineveh, as well as their plant, their animals. Think about this. While Jonah was obedient and responsive to God, he was witnessing the soul's that were being one to Christ. But while running from God and sitting on the hillside complaining, there was no activity for lost souls. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. While Jonah was sitting on the hillside and complaining, there was no activity for lost souls. Do you see this happening in our church today? We complain about things we fight in church board meetings, and nothing happens to win souls to the Lord. The point, only when God's people pray and submit their lives to God, will souls be won to Christ. When pride and selfishness rears its ugly head, you only have complaining. What's your walk like with God? Where are you in your Jonah experience? Running from? running to, obeying, or perhaps playing God. We get to Thursday's lesson. In Thursday's lesson here, we see the title is, Here Am I, Send Me. Before Nineveh could repent, Jonah had to re repent and come back to God himself. Before we will ever see people in the world repent and come to God, we need to repent and come to God ourselves. When Jonah repented and entered into God's work to seek the lost, when Jonah was willing to urge people to place the blood on the doorposts of their hearts, the people listened, the people came, the people repented, and multitudes were saved. Is God waiting for runaway Christians to come to their senses, to come to repentance, to come to obey his voice? Yes, emphatically, yes. And when they obey, multitudes will come and repent and will be ready for the kingdom. This is why today we're in the shaking time period. This shaking time period is where people are trying to run from God. They're, some of them are running to God. Some of them are obeying God. And then some of them, on the other hand, are actually trying to play God. In early writings, we're told, Mrs. White asked the question, I asked the meaning of the shaking. I had seen and was shown it would be caused by the straight testimony called for by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodicean. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and pour forth the straight testimony. Then she says, some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what causes the shaking among God's people. Today, God's beloved church is being shaken. God's beloved church is bickering back and forth about this issue and that issue. And as we stand on the sidelines bickering, the playing field is at a standstill. There is no work being done 
to go forward in missions. There is no work of evangelism done. And when we do evangelism, sadly, our efforts are futile. There are very few that come into the church because when we see them coming in the church, they look around, they hear the evangelistic series, they see what the Bible truths are, and they look around, they said, but people aren't following that because they're bickering. They don't really profess godliness. They talk about it, but their hearts pursue their own thing. And we dress like the world. We eat like the world. How can God bring into his beloved church people who are his when God's people are not ready? Who are you running from? Isn't it time for God's people to stop running from God and start running to God? Isn't it time that we obey the call and that we go into all the world to reach those in our community, to reach those in our neighborhoods? Isn't it time that we obey God? So what happens, just on another question, what happens when you walk with God? Well, I can tell you this. When you walk with God, your life is changed. Souls are one for Christ. Ask me how I know. I've seen it. And when you, your life is changed, when all these things of Bible truths, you begin to practice these things in your life and you surrender your life to God, things begin to change in your life. God starts utilizing you. But there's a reason that we need to make this change because we don't know when the end is coming. You know, there's a reason why the exodus took so long. It's because the people were unwilling to leave Egypt. Patriarchs and Prophets 272 tells us the task of Moses would have been much less difficult had not many of the Israelites become so corrupt that they were unwilling to leave Egypt. This is the situation today. This is why we are given the third angel's message to come out of her, my people. So many of God's people are in Babylon. It's not, listen to me very carefully, the church is not Babylon. Are you listening to me? The Seventh-day Adventist church is God's beloved church. It is the bride of Christ. It is not Babylon like some would like to call it. But I would caution you, there are many Babylonians within the bride of Christ. And those Babylonians are the ones that are causing the problems within the church. We have standards that we need to live up to. We cannot lower God down to our level. We must rise to that level. We are told that in the end, we must measure to the full stature of men and women called by God. There is a standard which God has set, and we must rise to that standard. We can't pick and choose what we want. It's all or nothing. And God is asking us, we've got to go, and we've got to follow. This is what happened with the Israelites. The warning went out as the night before the Exodus. 
the Israelites went out to the neighbors, neighbors and told them that they needed to get the blood on their doorposts in order to save them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a world lying out there that needs to know of the soon coming of Christ. I can tell you, I'm very blessed to be able to work for Amazing Facts. And if you're looking for resources, we have the resources that will enable you to go out and share these things. I'm sure that your church has plenty of resources as well that you can go out and share the message. Take some of these home with you. Put them in your car. Carry them in your handbag. Put them in your backpack. Share them with people as the Lord directs you. You can't share if you don't have. So it always makes it easy to be able to share these things. Friday's lesson is just a few further thoughts. I would like to share with you a few quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy here. From the book Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 47.2. The call, she says, I call upon every church to be aware of being led to think evil of those who because distrust or self fear that they have not the Holy Spirit. There are those who have followed their own ways instead of the ways of God. They have not acknowledged the light that God has graciously given. And because of this, they have lost the power of distinguish, to distinguish between darkness and light. There are many who have heard much in regard to the path they ought to follow, but who are ignorant or who ignore the requirements God makes of them. Their light does not shine in works that reveal the principles of truth and holiness. It is this class who in time of test will accept falsehood and erroneous theories for the truth of God. Every day by email or by Facebook Messenger or by text, I receive questions from people about this or that questioning, is this truth? Is this not truth? Brothers and sisters, we have to study these things for ourselves. We have to know because today, every ray of light is given to us. Unlike those who have lived hundreds, if not thousands of years before us, they didn't have all the light. They didn't have to live up to all that light. But for us today, there is no excuse. We have all the light and we need to study this light. We're told that not only are we held accountable for what we have done, but we're also held accountable for what we have left undone, our undeveloped characters. In the fifth volume of the testimony, page 610, a very startling message is given to us. God has done his part of the work of the salvation of men, and now he calls for the cooperation of the church. There are the blood of Christ, the word of truth, the Holy Spirit on one hand, and there are perishing souls on the other. Every follower of Christ has a part to act in bringing men to accept the blessings heaven has provided. Let us closely examine ourselves and see if we have done this work. Let us question our motives in every action of our lives. Are there not many unpleasant pictures hanging in memory's hall? Often, have you, dis have you needed the forgiveness of Jesus? Have you been constantly dependent upon his compassion and love? Yet, 
Have you not failed to manifest towards others the spirit which Christ has exercised upon you? Have you felt a burden for the one whom you saw venturing into forbidden paths? Have you kindly admonished him? Have you wept before him and prayed with him and for him? Have you shown by words of tenderness and kindly acts that you love him and desire to save him? As you have associated with those who were faltering and staggering under the load of their own infirmities of disposition and faulty habits, have you left them to fight the battles alone when you might have given them help? Have you not passed these sorely tempted ones by on the other side, which, or while the world has stood ready to give them sympathy and allure them into Satan's nets? Have you not, like Cain, been ready to say, am I my brother's keeper? How must the great head of the church regard the work of your life? How does he to whom every soul is precious as the purchase of his blood look upon your indifference to those who stray from the right path? Are you not afraid that he will leave you just as you leave them? Be sure that he who is the true watchman of the Lord's house has marked every neglect. There is one very, very important point I would like to leave with you. And it was brought out in these last two paragraphs. And the point is this, before you can even reach perishing souls, you have to grab a hold of God. You have to reach out and take a hold of his hand. And then through that strength, then you will have the ability to reach perishing souls. But without holding on to that hand, you will not have that ability. You will not know what to say. So I admonish you. I encourage you, study and pray every day. And it is through that study and prayer that you are actually grabbing a hold of God. And through that, you will have the ability to reach perishing souls. Brothers and sisters, these are the last days. We do not have much time left on this earth to play around. The gospel has to go out and we are in the shaking. With our Redeemer, in the most holy place, doing the work of the investigative judgment right now. Our life is in the balance. Where will you stand? This is a time that we need to be right with God. Our memory text today says, Also, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I heard, here am I, send me. Is that you? I pray that the Lord would use me. I pray that the Lord would use you to go and to do a work. It may not be to a far distant country. It may be just right here where we live right now. But either way, we know this. Jesus is coming soon and we want to be ready. I want to give you one more offer here, the same offer that I offered you at the very beginning. It's for the book, Your Case in Court. 
If you'd like to receive this book, you can call the number 1-866-788-3966 and ask for the offer 192. If you are in the United States, feel free to text the number SH050 to the number 40544. If you are outside the United States or Canada, by all means, go to the website and type in study.aftv.org forward slash SH050. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you, we count it a privilege to be able to study your word, to be able to study this lesson for us. And the words that we are reminded in this lesson is that we cannot be running from you. We cannot be playing God. We have to be obeying you. So we ask and pray that you would continue to instill in us these Bible truths that through the study of the word each and every day by holding your hand, we would be able to reach perishing souls with the gospel. Lead us, direct us to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Forgive us when we failed in the past is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.